This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, so um, I'm one of the upper extremity surgery um, orthopedic surgeons at San Francisco General and the Orthopedic Institute at UCSF. Um, and tonight I just wanted to talk about common geriatric fractures uh, about the wrist, which really is primarily one bone. But I think before we actually talk about the wrist, it's important to identify what the wrist actually is. Um, and so when we're talking about the wrist, we're talking about the bones that we see here. We're talking about the distal radius, which this is a lateral x-ray of the wrist. Here's a PA of the wrist, so a straight-on view showing the radius and the ulna. And then the bones, these are the wrist bones, and there's two main rows, the scaphoid, the lunate, the triquetrum, and the pisiform, and then the distal row here. But really, when we talk about geriatric fractures, a primary fracture that we see is the fracture of the distal radius. Um, And this is the distal part or the end of the distal radius that is your wrist joint. So I think it's pretty obvious from these x-rays that you can see what I mean when I say a distal radius fracture. So you can see that the fracture coming at the distal part of the distal radius extending up into the wrist joint. Um, You can see another part of the fracture over here. And then on the lateral view, what you can see is that the distal fragment here is the fracture, and that distal fragment is really displaced from the proximal fragment. And we'll go over kind of what this causes, how we fix it, um, and um, options that we have for treatment. So I think the previous slide, it was pretty obvious to see the fracture, but a fracture like this is a little less obvious to see. So this is a almost completely non-displaced or minimally displaced fracture. You can see the fracture line here, and you can also see the fracture line here. And on that lateral view that we showed earlier, we showed a a very displaced fracture. This one is actually very non-displaced. So we talk about treating these non-operatively and using cast treatment. And then when we talk about elderly fractures, there's a couple other things that come into play, and that's primarily the quality of the bone. Um, And you can see in this patient, what you may notice in in contrast to those earlier slides is this bone is a little bit more washed out. So we're talking about osteoporotic bone, or on x-ray it means osteopenic, so not as much bone. Um, And as you can see in this x-ray here, you tend to see a lot more pieces of bone or comminution or crunching of the bone that occurs in this setting of fracture. So when we talk about epidemiology of distal radius fractures, it's important to note that it's really a bimodal distribution. So it happens in the young, and the, in the adolescent and young adults, it's typically a really high-energy injury. So we see them in motor vehicle collisions, motorcycle accidents, fall from height. You rarely see a young patient with a distal radius from a fall from standing. Whereas on the other way, in the elderly patient, you tend to see lower energy injuries. So fall from standing, slipping on the ice, falling down a step. Um, And the incidence of these fractures correlates with osteopenia, or a low amount of bone noted on x-ray. So what we wanted to focus on today was the distal radius in the elderly population. Well, distal radiuses are actually the second most common fracture occurring in the elderly, which fall right behind hip fractures. They're most common in the upper extremity um, in, in patients over the age of 65. So this is a fracture that you tend to see most often in the elderly patients when they come in complaining of arm or wrist pain. 
Um, what's important to note is that a distal radius fracture gives you a 50% increase in your relative risk of sustaining a hip fracture in the rest of your lifetime. And as our population ages, the incidence of osteoporotic distal radius fractures increases. So over 80% of all fractures in people 50 or older are caused by osteoporosis. So just an alarming statistic is, is almost 400,000 people over the age of 65 sustain a distal radius in the United States. Right? So that's a high number, and that's like a large percentage of, of presentation to the emergency room or primary care physicians. Um, and then that, this bottom number shows that the decreased survival among distal radius patients. So long-term survival goes from about 57% uh, percent to 71 So if you have a distal radius fracture, the, the, there's, it, it's associated with other comorbidities, so the risk of developing a hip fracture and then other sequelae that come with a hip fracture, so po being bedridden, possibility of developing pneumonia, all of this. So the distal radius fracture, so one distal radius fracture actually increases, uh, sorry, decreases the survival rate. So what is the mechanism? So it's a fallen and outstretched hand, which in orthopedics we tend to call a FOSH, F-O-O-S-H. And this is pretty much the classic mechanism. It's slipping on ice or tripping, um, and the wrist is in extended position, so it's really hyperextended and radial deviation with a little bit of forearm pronation. So the arm is pronated a little bit like this in a fall. And that causes the wrist to fracture at the at the distal radius. And so this bone here, so it usually occurs at the metaphysis. So the metaphysis is the weakest portion of the bone, and that's where the fracture occurs and where you can see a lot of pieces or comminution in the fracture. So most of the fractures that we see, we, we label them. We try and have um, some way of classifying what type of the fracture is. But most fractures that you see in distal radiuses, when we talk about them, are called a Collie's fracture. And this was an eponym that was given to an extra-articular distal radius, meaning that the fracture doesn't in extend into the joint line. Um, and then the fracture actually displaces dorsally. So it goes towards the back of the hand, not the front of the hand. And this is related to the mechanism of injury with a fall on an outstretched hand. So most of the fractures that we tend to see in distal radius is this distal piece goes backwards, right, towards the back of the hand. Um, and, it, and the Collie's fracture really means that it's extra articular, so the fracture doesn't extend into the joint line. Um, so these are the criteria when we look at distal radiuses. We try and say, well, how off of normal is it? I mean, that's what all orthopedists do. We have to say, well, we know what normal anatomy is. We know what this x-ray shows, but how far off of normal? And is it far off enough that we need to restore normal anatomy to give you good function, right? So um, this is what we end up doing. When we, you come into the emergency room and you've broken your wrist, we get x-rays, right? And we see, we do a physical exam, we assess you, we make sure that you can still feel your hand. And we see that you have, oh gosh, you have this bad distal radius fracture, dorsally displaced. We want to get you back into an anatomic position to try and give you the best function possible. So what we have to do is... We inject at the area where the fracture is, and this is called a hematoma block. So what we're doing is aspirating the hematoma, which means just sucking the blood out of where the blood is in the bone by sticking a needle in there. And then once we find that area, we actually can inject numbing, so lidocaine, the same stuff that you get when you go to the dentist, into that wound. Then we wait a little bit until you have some um, pain relief, 
and then the fracture gets reduced, and you can see that that's what's going on here. So what we have to do is to recreate the mechanism of injury, which I said was that hyperextension of the wrist, and then pushing it back into the right position with the goal of getting it back into the right anatomic position so that we can put a cast on it. And it looks something like this. And most often, if anybody in here has had a distal radius fracture, you don't get a pretty cast like this the day that you go into the emergency room. You end up with a big, bulky splint. And the question is always, well, what's the difference between a splint and a cast? We like to accommodate for swelling, right? And so a cast is non-circumferential. So the idea is that a, a, or sorry, a splint is non-circumferential. So the splint allows swelling. So frequently after these injuries, within the next 24 or 48 hours, you swell up even more. And so we don't want to have a circumferential dressing like this immediately. We want to be able to accommodate for that. And then we want to follow you back up and change you into a cast later as your swelling comes down. So in terms of distal radius in the elderly, what we know is that there's poor bone quality, frequently associated with low bone mineral density, meaning if you've ever gotten a DEXA scan to look at your bone mineral density, we see it, um, that it is um, lower there. There's comminution, and then there's a direct correlation with the amount of comminution and how low the bone mineral density is. So in osteopenia, if you have a fall and you have osteopenia or osteoporosis, the chance of having a worse distal radius fracture for a low-energy injury gets higher. Um, so osteoporosis, just again, is that low bone mineral density, increases the risk of fracture after a low trauma, meaning you have weaker bone when you have less of it. So if you fall, there's a higher risk of actually breaking it. Um, we know that there's an increased risk of distal radius fracture in patients with osteoporosis, and that the severity is worse if you have osteoporosis. So what we do know is that treatment for osteoporosis, such as bisphosphonates, which actually help to improve your bone density, can actually decrease the risk of sub subsequent fragility fracture. So it's actually helped out a lot in not only um, decreasing the, the um, incidence of distal radius fractures, but also in decreasing the severity of the fracture. So our treatment options, when we talk about distal radius, it goes from non-operative to operative management. And these are the primary options that we discuss when we talk to our patients. So there's closed reduction and casting, which we just reviewed before. By reduction, we're talking about pushing the bone back to where it went and putting it in a cast, temporarily in a splint. External fixation is an option which requires a minimal incision. Um, percutaneous pin fixation, meaning using pins to manipulate the fracture site to get it in a good position. And then finally doing open reduction and internal fixation, which is putting plates and screws inside. So we look at the patient, we look at the fracture pattern, we look at all of these options, and then we decide what is the best to do for this fracture pattern. And so again, you can see that picture of the cast. So for a non-operative treatment, this is what you end up with. This is percutaneous pinning. So these are just small poke holes that are made through the bone, um, that are made through the skin, and then subsequently through the bone to hold it until the fracture gets healed. And then you also have a cast that's put on on top of this. This picture in the lower left shows an external fixator. So basically you have two pins that go into the index finger or the long finger and a pin at the proximal aspect of the radius. There's two pins down here. And this is a rod that holds it out to length until the bone heals. 
Um, and then finally, this is a plate, right? So this is when we go in and put in bone in um, a plate and screws to hold the fracture, and this plate should stay in forever. We don't typically have to take them out. These pins in the percutaneous pin fixation, they actually come out. So all of these treatment options we have to consider when we think about how you can manage it. And you're probably asking yourself, well, gosh, I'd like non-operative treatment, so is that an option? Um, or I'd like the most minimally invasive treatment, is that an option? Well, then you know, the question becomes, you can't really use minimally... Um, minimal fixation in the setting of very poor bone quality. So using a small pin like this to hold a very osteoporotic fracture just doesn't work, right? And so sometimes you consider spanning it to hold them out to length, although with, when you use an external fixator, you don't get very good joint congruity because you can't put the pieces back together. Um, and then the plate, which does hold the pieces together because you have better fracture manipulation by opening it, and putting screws in it gives you kind of the best option for rigid internal fixation. So treatment options as an orthopedic surgeon, when we think about treatment options, we always think about restoring anatomic congruity, which means getting that articular surface back together so that you can move your wrist without having any, any um, further arthritis develop. So you want a nice smooth surface so that you can get your wrist moving without increasing risk of arthritis. Um, and so we look at all those things, like I mentioned before, the tilts of the fracture, right, because we don't want you to get pain or stiffness or degeneration if there's a step off in the joint. Um, the incongruency, so remember in that initial x-ray where I showed you every fracture has a, every bone, you all have a radius and an ulna, and those two bones go together. So if the, you break the radius and it moves away from the ulna, it's going to affect your range of motion in your supination, so palm up and palm down. So we have to make sure that, because there's a joint right here, we have to make sure that that joint still looks okay so we can get you moving in this plane first and also in this plane. Some of the things that if you have a distal radius that doesn't heal well, you can end up with uh, pain, mid-carpal instability, which means that if the wrist is so displaced, then the rest of the wrist above it actually isn't aligned well, um, and then post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So if there's a step-off, what happens is you end up with more load concentrated on one part of the wrist than on the other part of the wrist, and you develop arthritis at that step-off. All right, so what do we know about fractures in the elderly? Well, we know that fractures displace in the elderly because they don't have great bone. We know that radiographic appearance, actually, so the x-rays that we take don't always correlate with functional outcome. And finally, we know that marked deformity and severe fracture displacement has been shown to adversely affect functional outcome, which is kind of strange because two and three are kind of opposite of what you would think, right? So radiographic appearance doesn't matter yet we know that really bad radiographic appearance is not good for functional outcomes. So how do, how do we deal with all of this? So if we're dealing with non-operative, they go in a splint. We try and get a nice mold where the fracture is, which means kind of putting counter molds where the fracture wants to displace. The fracture wants to fall off the same way that it fell off originally. So you try and mold it back into place. So let's say we go non-operative. You stay in a cast for six weeks. But in terms of fracture displacement, let's say we get a really good reduction the day you come in the emergency room and everyone's high-fiving. We say, I think, I think you don't need surgery. That's great. But what the studies have shown is that the older you get, the more likely you have for your fracture to displace. So this was a study that was done in 2004. And you can see that right at about age 58, 
the risk of fracture of reducing of a fracture malreducing after your initial reduction goes up to 50%. So let's say you're 60 years old and you break your wrist and you go into the emergency room and somebody pushes on it and gets a really nice x-ray. We see you back in one week and we take another x-ray. You have a 50% chance that that x-ray is still going to look okay, right? That's not great. If you're 80, the chance of it falling off at one week is 77%, right? And the numbers just go up week after week so that you don't really get a solid or at least a semi-solid construct, meaning hard callus that we can put you in a cast until about two or three weeks. So most of the fractures, if they're going to move, they move in that first two weeks. Right, so here's, here's a fracture. Remember that fracture that I showed you at the beginning that we're saying, okay, you can barely even see the fracture line here. Here's what that fracture looked like at three weeks, and you can actually see based on this angle here that it's now tilted backwards. So this actually lost reduction um, over the course of two weeks with serial x-rays. So when we see patients in clinic, we always say, well, we think from x-ray at week one that you're probably not going to need surgery, but I can't guarantee you until I take an x-ray at week two and maybe week three before I can say, you know what, you're out of the woods and you're not going to need surgery. So this patient ended up with a wrist plate. So what about that second statement that I said, that radiographic appearance doesn't affect functional outcome? Well, gosh, so this is studies that are done in low-demand patients over the age of 60. So, and I think that's a part here is that we're talking about low-demand sedentary patients, right? So in those patients, the actual radiographs didn't correlate with their functional outcome because if you actually looked at their functional outcome before and functional outcome after, it didn't change a lot because they were sedentary low-demand, which I think is not most of our population these days. So I think if you're talking about sedentary low-demand, we're looking at an age right now that's probably over the age of 80, right? So I think it's kind of changing over the years. But these patients, overall satisfaction rate, they had 68% good to excellent results, um, and their radiographic outcomes didn't correlate at all with their functional outcome, right? They did a prospective study for people age 50 years and older, and they just measured radiographic measurements. And then they did surveys to say, how, how well are you doing? What's your functional outcome? And again, this study showed it didn't correlate. So based on those studies, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be out of a job soon, right? It says you shouldn't to operate on any of these distal radius fractures. So should we treat them all non-operatively? So then you look at the liter literature out there, and there's a lot of literature saying that if you have a lot of shortening, right, like you can see in this patient here, so the bone has shortened, or if you have a lot of angulation, so 10 degrees off of normal, 20 degrees off of normal, which we see 40 degrees off of normal, the really displaced fractures, those are the ones that end up with very poor outcomes. So we're starting to see a lot more of those as our population becomes older over the years. So we tend to see a lot more distal radius fractures as we talked about at the beginning. So I think that, you know, we know that there are a lot of fractures. There are a lot that maybe we can treat non-operatively that you have to have that discussion about. And the ones that are really bad, you actually really need to discuss that with a patient because most patients over the age of 60 aren't sedentary low-demand patients. So this is just another study showing that you, know, you can manage them with whatever you want, whether you do X-fix, whether you do cast immobilization, whether you do operative fixation. There's really not a lot of difference between what you do and the outcomes. Most people do equivalent at one year. 
So if you do an open reduction internal fixation, well, gosh, it makes your x-rays look a lot better because you can really manipulate the fractures to get them exactly how you want it. And you can get them moving earlier. So the studies show that with operative intervention with open reduction internal fixation, people do better earlier. But everybody's the same at one year. Right? So then it becomes a question is, do you want to be a little bit better at six weeks, or are you willing to wait three months, or are you willing to wait a year? What's that time frame that's important to you? So I think the rate of recovery really becomes more of an issue, right? If you can say, well, wait a year and you'll be fine and you won't need to have surgery, right? So they did a study and they showed that ORIF, so open reduction internal fixation, putting that pin on the inside, they had better clinical outcomes up to six months, but then at one year, they were equivocal. So is rate of recovery the thing that we should be looking at more than the overall um, functional recovery at one year? So when I, when I think about how I'm going to treat my distal radius fractures, I go through a thought process. And number one is think about the patient, right? I think it's really important not only to find out age, but comorbidities and really function. So as I mentioned, not everybody is, is low-function sedentary, and most of our elder population these days are just as probably or even more um, active than I am these days. Um, and so I think you have to have a discussion with the patient. So what we always do is we ask age, hand dominance, functional level. Because it's different if you have somebody that's sitting in home and not moving around versus if you have a 65-year-old woman who's playing tennis every day and does yoga and really wants full range of motion to be able to do a downward dog position or to throw the ball for her dog. All of these things are really important to consider. So this is something that we have a conversation with our patient about, right? And then you may have that patient that's just too sick for surgery. Or you may have a low-functional patient that even though the x-rays look terrible, you're going to treat them non-operatively. And I can tell you I've seen 95-year-old women with distal radius fractures from hitting them on doors or banging them on something or falling down that I've treated non-operatively. And I hate looking at the x-rays, but they do just fine. It just takes them a while to heal. And so as a surgeon, you just really almost want to never take an x-ray again because it just looks so terrible. And then they come into clinic and they're like, I'm doing fine. So um, I, I think it's worth having that conversation, right? So some of the things that I think about is when I look at these x-rays, is the carpus, so the rest of the wrist, is it sitting over the rest of the radius, because to me that's actually one of the primary indicators for operative fixation for me. That's actually how they get, what it means is as the wrist starts to tilt back more and more and more, this is what's going to limit the wrist flexion, this is what's going to limit your pronation and supination. So if the wrist is not sitting over the shaft, then I consider that something that's an operative intervention. Um, when we talk about fracture management, if we elect the non-operative part. So if I say, great, your reduction looks great. You're 65 years old. I still have that discussion to say, you have a 50% chance of this not looking okay next week. And when they come back at week one, we get another x-ray in that splint. And I still say, you still aren't out of the woods for surgery. Come back in another week, right? And two weeks. So it's usually one, two, maybe even three weeks in an x-ray, depending on how bad your fracture is, how kind of osteopenic your bone looks to me. Um, and then we manage you after that in a cast for six weeks. We get you out of the cast, we get you moving, and you start slowly bearing weight. Versus operative fixation, it's still a six-week process of non-weight bearing, but you usually can move immediately after the surgery. If you have a plate put in, I have you start moving with our therapist at week one.
So a, a couple things to think about, and, and I think this, this probably isn't underscored enough here in this talk, is that um, osteoporosis is incredibly prevalent. We have to be thinking about it as an orthopedic surgeon. So I think one of the things, and, and I know you have been to many lectures and still have a few to go, but you know, it's really important that as an, as an orthopedic surgeon that when we see an elderly person with a distal radius fracture, we have to take ownership of that patient and say, are you getting treated? Have you been evaluated for osteoporosis? Right? So I think it's really important. At, at the very least, we try and contact a primary care surgeon, or sorry, a primary care doctor to say, hey, looks like your patient hasn't had a DEXA scan. They need to get that done. They needed to be treated for osteoporosis because you know what? They had a distal radius fracture, and they need treatment. So um, through, through our, where I work at San Francisco General, we actually don't have a DEXA scan there, um, but we can, we can refer them to UCSF. And so um, we, try and, we try and do that and coordinate with their, their primary care physician so we can get them treated appropriately. Um, and this is both sexes, right? It's not just a woman with a distal radius fracture. It's important to know that this can happen in males too. Um, so I'm done with my talk. I'm happy to open this up to some questions. You have specific questions about risks before Dr. Candemir gets going. So the question was... Um, does a DEXA scan need to be of the wrist in the setting of a distal radius fracture? Is there differences in the bone density of the wrist versus in the spine and in the back? Um, and I can't answer that exactly per se, but typically they aren't doing DEXA scans of the wrist. There's a lot of studies today kind of trying to correlate bone density of the wrist to say, can you actually have a lower energy, like a DEXA scan of the wrist to, to compensate? But most of them is the back and the hip that are done, and they're able to correlate that. Yeah. And I think um, to answer your question about whether it's you know, diet-related, it certainly is. I mean, the studies of American children um, have shown that there's a higher incidence of osteoporosis, and it actually went up with the rise in diet soda. Um, and so um, it'll be interesting to see with this new evolution of what's going on with the don't drink dairy, you know, try to eat almond milk and all those things. They had, there haven't been any studies done yet to correlate that, but it, there is when you go back to the 80s and early 90s and look at the rise in soda and the increase in osteoporosis in children. So that's even in children, they're starting osteoporosis exercises in school where they have like jumping. They try and get the kids out jumping. They're in, they're, there's a movement to try and get um, children to get out in the sun more. So it's sort of opposite of what the dermatologists say is like put sunscreen on. There's a movement to, and by getting in the sun, it's getting the vitamin D, which actually helps with calcium absorption. So there's been suggestions to try and get kids to say, hey, during warm up, don't put sunscreen on them. But then when they start the game, put sunscreen on them so that they actually, you're not blocking all of the sun coming in so they can get the vitamin D. So yoga is certainly helpful. Um, there are those small wrist, wrist weights that you can use that are like one to two pounds. Um, certainly doing weight-bearing exercises, so weight lifting, so getting on a treadmill or walking with small weights in your hand, so one to two pound weights work really well. So like I sent my mother, who is a thin white woman, um, arm straps, and I told her that you know whenever she's getting ready in the morning, I want her to put those on and use them. So I'm going to talk about the shoulder and elbow. Shoulder and elbow joints actually are very important on a daily function for anybody because to position your hand anywhere in the space, you need to have motion in the shoulder and elbow. Wherever you want to do anything with your hand, actually there's some motion with your shoulder and elbow. And if you lose that, you will feel that as a disability. 
We call in medicine activities of daily living, which means that anybody who want to live on a daily basis normally need to do these basic activities, basically routine activities that people tend to do every day without needing any kind of assistance or device or from any help from somebody else. There are six basic daily living activities that we do. Eating, bathing, uh, dressing, toileting, transferring, meaning that walking, moving from one place to another, and the continence. All these things are basic needs that any human being needs to do every day. And if you have any stiffness in the shoulder or elbow, it's going to be a challenging problem because you lose your motion. And unfortunately, shoulder and elbow joints, compared to our other joints, they have a tendency to develop stiffness compared to the other joints, even with subtle, small injuries. And when we call a functional range of motion, so you can have a full range of motion, meaning that uh, you can have all the motions you can have without any injury on an extremity, but also there's some functional range of motion, which means that you may not have the full motion, but you can function totally fine, especially for daily activities. And for the shoulder and elbow, actually, there's quite a bit of a motion you need to do. Actually, there's no joint in our body, if you think about the shoulder, there's no joint in the body that can do this much motion. It's the most mobile joint in the body that you can move across all the way from the back, from the top. This is the most mobile joint in the body. Obviously, this comes with a cost. If you lose some motion, you will feel it. So it's that important. In the arm, you need to move your arm in and out to be able to grab things and hand things over, to turn the doorknob, to turn any jar. There's a lot of function you need to do. Around the shoulder, we have a bunch of muscles, and more importantly, as you can see on this side, maybe you have heard about it or you may have any surgery or treatment for this, there are rotator cuff muscles. To be able to help for your shoulder, there are very important muscles around the shoulder. They are called rotator cuff tendons, and it's very common to have problems with it once you are over 40, 45 years old. Any any patient who walks in an orthopedic clinic with shoulder pain without any major fracture actually will probably will have some kind of rotator cuff problem 90% of the time. But I'm going to talk mostly about the fractures. When we talk about the shoulder, there's a lot of joints actually. There's a lot of bones. This is the collar bone up here, a shoulder blade bone, and the arm bone, the humerus bone. I'm going to talk first about the proximal humerus fractures. Basically, the arm bone, where it gets closer to the shoulder joint. As Dr. Schroeder mentioned, the distal radius fracture is the number one, but the second most common upper extremity fracture is the distal radius fracture. And if you think about it, over 65-year-old, when we get to there, this is the third most common fracture is the shoulder fracture, the proximal humerus fracture. And we are aging every day, right? Everybody's in this room is a day older than yesterday. Nobody's getting younger, so don't worry. <laughs> and it's an increasing epidemic, what we call it in medicine, because people were not living as much 50 years ago. The lifespan of the population is going, especially in the Western world, is much higher. Now it's 80, 85, I believe, in the last, uh, in the last studies. So an average human being living in the, in the United States the average age is like 80, 85, which means that there's a very good chance that everybody who lives at that age will have one of these fractures, hip, distal radius, or shoulder fracture. 
the mechanism is common, it's the same way as you fall. And why it happens when you get older? So two, two reasons. One, your bones get weaker, as we were talking about. The second thing is we get older, actually, we have some balance issues or the eyesight issues. Like your vision is not as good. You may trip easily without seeing what's going on on the floor. Also, our balance gets worse for other reasons, not due to bones, but our balance or your perception feeling gets worse as we get older. It's more common in females, two to three times more common than in females because of the low bone quality, low bone density, as I mentioned earlier. So anybody uh, will get their highest bone density when they get about 30 years old, okay? After 30 years old, your bone density starts going down. Whatever you get when you are 30, after that it slowly goes down. In females, it's very protected until they get the menopause, but after the menopause, there's a huge dip. They start losing significantly. Uh, when we call osteoporosis, actually the bone becomes like an eggshell. When you get severe osteoporosis, it's really like an eggshell. When we treat this in surgically, we treat this in surgically in the operating room, when we kind of touch with our fingers, it's like an eggshell breaking or kind of having a pinpoint effect, like you can actually move with a little pressure. Most of these proximal fractures are treated non-surgically because they are not too displaced. I put some kind of frames around some pictures, which is, shows the normals, that you can have a comparison with the other ones. So this is the normal with the green frame around it. So as you can see, there are some fractures like this. This is like a little, not badly broken because everything is close by. You can see a little more fractures here. And this one is definitely severely displaced. And there's a 3D image on that corner. As you can see, the ball of the bone is supposed to be here severely displaced. And these are totally different fractures as you can imagine and should be treated differently. As we mentioned, most manageable non-surgically, but I think in the last decade, we have better techniques to treat this, and they are being treated more commonly, more and more commonly, with surgeries. Interestingly, as of 2018, there's no clear-cut indications for this type of fracture. It's very interesting to, still to me, too, that almost all of the fractures where we have certain guidelines when to do surgery, when to treat without surgery. But this fracture, there's no clear-cut indications because everybody treats a little differently and based on their experience, they may have different ways to treat to get good outcomes. The goal is always to obtain and maintain a satisfactory reduction, keeping the bones where they are supposed to be, and to avoid the stiffness, which is the dreaded complication for us uh, to allow early progressive range of motion. You can get the bones healed without moving them, keeping them kind of braced with the body, but if the shoulder doesn't move, if the bone heals, it's not a very functional, and you will hate it. And the goal of it is to restore your function. It's not about the x-rays. Most common type of surgical treatment, when surgery is indicated in the United States, will be with plate and screws for this type of fracture. As you can see, this is how the plate and screws looks like. This is how it looks like on a saw bone. This is like in a patient, how they look like. And there are certain indications to do some replacement. Sometimes we decide to do replacement instead of trying to fix it. When the fixation, we think that the surgery is indicated, meaning that without surgery, that function is not going to be good, 
and the surgeries indicated them, and we cannot really fix it, meaning that you can put plate and screws, but if you cannot move it right away, that means that it's not going to give you any good outcome, then you should do replacement. That's what we do. And usually this is based on the fracture pattern, is the very severely comminuted, meaning multi-million pieces, or the bone quality is so poor that no matter how you fix it, the bone quality is not going to hold the fixation to be able to move the arm right away. So there are different ways to replace the shoulder too. The main way to replace the shoulder actually is called a reverse shoulder replacement. And it's really reverse. We basically, what we do, we reverse the ball and the socket and the joint anatomically. So this is a shoulder replacement on this side. This is a normal shoulder replacement that you will get if you need the shoulder replacement for arthritis. If you have a severe arthritis of your shoulder, you come for the symptoms, is bad enough that you cannot function, you will have a shoulder replacement. We will put a socket plastic on the socket side, and there's a ball with a stem that goes in on the arm side, with the ball on the ball side. So this is kind of replacing or imitating the normal shoulder joint. But in case of fracture, the thing is a little different because all the pieces that has the attachments of this rotator cuff tendons, you usually cannot put them together. That's why you are doing the replacement. So uh, Dr. Garamond from France, about 30 years ago, figured out that if you can do something technically totally reverse design, putting the ball on the shoulder blade bone side and the socket on the arm bone side, actually it works better in this setting when you don't have a rotator cuff. That's what we do in the setting of the fractures commonly. I'm going to give you some examples which may happen to any of us uh, in, the, in the room. This is a 54-year-old flight attendant, right hand dominant, post-injury day five comes in, in my clinic. So this is how normal it looks like. This is her x-rays. As you can see, there are some fracture lines here and here. This is another view, side view. The fracture is on this side. It's not very visible, actually. And this is another view. We check in a couple views to make sure that there's no significant displacement. And I started non-surgical treatment. Non-surgical treatment doesn't mean that you do nothing. So still to be able to keep the bones as they are supposed to be, I give them a brace like this, thinking that how these bone pieces will be displaced based on the muscles that are attached to it. So the muscle still contracts, and they try to displace these fracture fragments. And to minimize this effect and to get this healed at the best position, I give the patient this kind of brace. With or without surgery, I, should, I give the same brace. And I tell the patients that they're not going to like this brace for about a month because it's like it stays like straight ahead. But this is the best thing that the patient can do to get better function. This patient comes back in three weeks. We do repeated x-rays to make sure that the bone is healing, but more importantly, it's not displacing further that may cause a worse outcome. The, as you can see, the green with the picture in the grain frame, and this looks the normal how it looks supposed to look like. It doesn't look too bad, maybe a little displaced up here, but it looks pretty similar, so I continued non-surgical treatment. This is her at three months. This is her at six months. And this is her function. So she gets pretty good function, but as I said, this is not coming without the cause, just putting the sling on the, the bracing it, okay? This comes in, the patient has to be compliant and listen to do what to do, what not to do, and be very compliant. If a patient does what they are supposed to do and we do our job, I think you can get good outcomes. 
And actually, she went back to work, which had a requirement before to release her to back to work. Actually, apparently, they have the requirement they should be able to put a carry-on baggage or an overhead compartment. Otherwise, they cannot go back to the full duty. And she was able to do that. So, it's not easy, but you can achieve these outcomes. I'm going to give you a totally on the other end of the spectrum. This is a 29-year-old computer engineer. After a motorcycle accident, after a bilateral shoulder injury, actually her, his other shoulder was also injured, but was minimally displaced that I treated without surgery, and that other side was not very significant. So this one, as you can see, comparing to this normal x-ray, it doesn't even look like similar, right? It looks like a jumbled fragments around here. It's hard to make the same picture out of this. So this was a very bad injury in a 29-year-old. And I think I have a video if it's going to move. This is a three-dimensional picture uh, out of the CT scan that we get. Uh, it's going to spin a little bit, hopefully, with that video. As you can see, there are multiple fragments. You cannot even see that there's a ball. And where is the ball, right? The ball actually dislocated down here. Okay? It's dislocated out of the socket. So after spinning... I recommended fixation. In a 29-year-old, we don't want to do a replacement because replacement doesn't work as long as we want. Even the hip and knee replacement, probably the best ones that we do, last about probably with the current technology like 20 years, 25 years, we hope. A shoulder replacement doesn't last as long. In a 29-year-old, if you put a replacement, probably will fail in 10 years. So we don't want to do that. So that's why I tried to put everything together, but piecemealing, basically putting the pieces together with the puzzle without much guides and without a great template that you can put it together. After many hours of surgery, I was able to kind of put things together with some mini plates and some bigger plates, some screws, and this was what I was able to achieve. It took many hours, but I think it's worth it for a 29-year-old. This is where we started, as you can see. That is where we ended. It, this, it looks like a, there's a ball in there. It looks like an arm bone, right? At least I was able to provide some bone that even if he gets a replacement down in the line, he can get a replacement that may function close to any replacement that you can do after arthritis. That was my goal. Even everything kind of doesn't heal and falls apart. This is four and a half months post-op. Everything was holding together. Actually, I am still following this patient. He's about a year out. The bones are still there. They didn't fall apart. He had some resorption. I don't have the most recent x-ray. I'm sorry. He had some resorption of some bone up here. And this was his function in four and a half months. As you can see, this is not perfect. Uh, this is not close to the other side. You can see the limitation compared to the other side, both on like getting to the back, etc. But this requires a lot of kind of dedication from the patient side too. Another patient, 30-year-old, the younger the patients are, I think I'm a little more aggressive because they have a longer life to live, and I, may, I try to make them more anatomic. I don't want to kind of sign off it. This may heal on its own, and you will do fine. With the fracture, it's a three-dimensional picture. She was a 30-year-old, totally healthy, very active, uh, doing exercises three, four times a, a week, and outdoor activities, I discussed the options. As I say, there's no clear-cut indications when to do surgery. But in my hands, I think the patients with these fractures do better 
with surgery, with surgery than without surgery. I follow every single patient. Even they, when I recommend they don't want surgery or they come later on treated non-surgically, I follow all these patients because I believe that the best way to learn from patients as a doctor, you need to follow all kinds of patients even when you don't do surgery. So this patient I treated with surgery. As you can see, it's out little normal. And as we use a plate and screws, and in three months, with dedication and miscarrying the patient, that the stiffness is the worst thing to do, to treat, because I'd rather treat probably 100 fractures than try to treat a stiffness, because there's no good way to treat the stiffness. She got close to full range of motion at three months. I think this is a good way to kind of support the evidence that the surgery may get you better range of motion and quicker. Another example, and a 58-year-old, starts to fall and tripped over a dog. This is how the normal, how it looks like, and this is her x-rays. It doesn't look as bad as the computer engineer one, but it's not normal and it's pretty displaced. And I fix it like this, and this is about a year out, and this is her function. These are the functions that actually very good functions compared to a lot of results in the literature. But I spent quite a lot of time before doing the surgery with these patients, what they need to do. And if they don't do what they need to do, the surgery I do may not get the best outcome, although I may get a good x-rays. Another patient, this is a 66-year-old diabetic patient. So when there are comorbidities, the bone quality is not great. And the treatment complications with surgery may go a little higher, especially trying to get the bones to heal. And diabetes is the one that we really don't like to treat surgically because the risk of infection is higher and the bone quality is always less than compared to somebody who is not diabetic at the same age and activity level. As you can see, there's a significant fracture and it's displaced. And for this patient, actually, I did a replacement. And this is a reverse replacement, as you can see, the ball on the sh shoulder blade bone side and the socket on the arm bone side. And this is how her function is. With this replacement, you don't get, you may not get the great function. Actually, with the reverse shoulder replacement after fractures, what we tell the patients that they can get about the head level function. They may get up, but it's very hard to say predictably what they're going to have. They will get about the function about the head level, but they're not going to be probably get all the way up. And the rotationally, getting out may not be as reliable. The reason is that the remaining parts of the bone, uh, when we replace it, the rotator cuff tendons may not be attached at all. And you don't have the rotator cuff tendons attached to the remaining part of the bone, then you're not going to have great rotations. Meaning that when you try to get reach out to something, this, this range of motion, you may, not be, you may be kind of stuck there. You may need to turn hold your body to be able to do that, to reach there. Okay. So our goal is always to avoid this kind of complications. Obviously, I'm a surgeon. I'm biased. Uh, I do surgeries every day, and I see patients for surgeries every day. Surgery may result in bad complications, as you can see on these pictures, too. So although you try to fix it, it may not work, the bone may not heal. You may have all these like screws pulling out, plates broken, even the kind of the ball kind of melting down, the screws poking through. There are a lot of complications associated with 
uh, surgeries to you. It's not a slam dunk. It's not doesn't mean that you get the surgery and you're going to get a great outcome. Our goal is to pro- provide uh, to avoid this kind of complications. I have a 50-50 rule uh, when I recommend surgery with the patients. I tell them that 50% is the surgery I do, and the other 50% is the exercises that they have to do by themselves every day and with the physical therapist. It's not just going to the physical therapist twice a week, 45 minutes, they're going to get the good outcome that the pictures I show you. They have to do their part. It's a 50-50. Really, it falls onto the patient's shoulder, especially for shoulder and elbow. These are super critical. Let's say you get a hip replacement, and you don't want to be complied with the physical therapy. You probably will get close to normal function with somebody who had the physical therapy in a, in a year. All the studies have shown that. It doesn't work for shoulder and elbow because for somehow, naturally, the shoulder and elbow develop stiffness and they have a tendency to develop stiffness. So you're going to get both the surgery part, my part, and the patient needs to do their part to be able to get the 100%. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the elbow. Elbow joint is also important to be able to use your hand Mainly, to be able to eat, you need to bend your elbow, right? And to be able to type or clean yourself, you need to extend your elbow. This is the only way to do this. You need to get from here to back there to clean yourself at least to get the daily functions. So around the elbow, we have a lot of muscles. The elbow joint is kind of ligaments that makes it stable. And the other thing, there are a lot of nerves that crosses the elbow, as you can see. Three major nerves crosses the elbow that you can get the hand function. And our hands are the most kind of elegant parts of our body. There's no parts in our body that can do that kind of elegant, fine motor function as our hands do. Our thumbs and index fingers has much more, occupies much more neurons in the brain than any part of our body per the size. These are the most fine motor functions that we can do with our hands. So if there's any injury on these nerves around the elbow, then you may lose your function in the hand. Commonly, it's a fall over a kind of an arm. It can happen with motorcycle accidents, motor vehicle accidents. That's commonly, you need to do surgery. Around the elbow, if you have a displaced fracture, compared to other parts of our body, usually they're like, Non-displaced fracture will be treated without surgery. Around the elbow, it's very hard to move the elbow with a fracture that it is not going to displace. Commonly, if you have an elbow fracture, you will need surgery to be able to get even a reasonable function. These are distal humerus fractures, so the fracture of the arm bone where it meets the elbow joint. And again, you, have, you see the picture with the green a frame is a normal how it looks like and it is a broken as you can see there's a fracture here it's kind of uh, displaced and shortened this is the side view of the same patient a 54 year old nurse as you can see the fracture and the displacement the same picture of a three-dimensional picture that we can actually get out of the CT scan as you can see how the normal looks like and this is a broken arm of hers and I fixed it with the plate and screws, as you can see, trying to make it as close as normal. This is the side view again, after fixing plate and screws. And this is her function at about six months. 
as you can see, with any elbow injury, any elbow fracture, you're going to lose some of your extension, be able to make it straight. 95% of the patients treated surgically or non-surgically, non-displaced or displaced, they're going to probably lose 5 to 10 degrees. Only 5% of the people may get full range of motion, no matter how much they work on it. The good thing is that actually you don't need to have the full extension. If you lose 5 to 10 degrees, you should still be able to comp compete in Olympics for most part of the sports. It's not going to be a functional limiting because there's really nothing much we do on a full, full extension. You don't need that motion. Almost everything we do with bending of the elbow, getting to your head, washing your head, combing your hair, or eating, or getting to your pocket, getting your, to your back, uh, your bra, everything requires bending of the elbow. That's why we focus on the bending of the elbow uh, when we do physical therapy postoperatively. So this is a 94-year-old after a fall. As you can see, she has a fracture up here. I probably, so this is how it normally it looks like. There's a fracture kind of, kind of impacted in there, what we call it. As you like, look at on the side view, it's hard to see. The bones kind of get into each other, as you can see. At this age, I probably can fix it, but the best outcomes, the literature shows that quicker and the best outcomes comes in with a replacement, elbow replacement. And elbow replacements actually are pretty rare because... Elbow replacement doesn't last even as long as the shoulder replacement. That's why we don't want to do it in younger people for sure. Unless there's no other options at all, we may do elbow replacement. But at age 90, actually with the limitations that you're probably going to be only doing taking care of yourself, and you're not doing any heavy physical activities, and the lifespan you have is probably another 10 years or 5 years at best, the elbow replacement is a great option. Because the surgery is quicker, the blood loss and all the complications are less, and you don't need too much physical therapy, which is a little harder as you get older to go to a physical therapy place, etc. And they get better pain relief and better function with the elbow replacement. And she get that's what I did for her, and she did well. Another complication around the elbow, as I mentioned, the stiffness. Around the elbow, compared to other, or other joints, they have a, the elbows have a tendency to develop extra bone formation. Due to the injury to the muscles and the capsule of the elbow joint, sometimes this cap, the muscle and the capsule of the elbow joint turns into bone. Basically, our body creates bone when we don't want it. We don't want bone healing, obviously, when there's a fracture at the fracture site, but at other places, which may limit the uh, range of motion. And we may need to do surgery afterwards to get rid of this extra bone formation sometimes. And these are all the kind of failed fixation which may happen with the bone, low bone quality and sometimes not appropriate surgery. You may see this kind of failures of fixation, as you can see. And our goal is to avoid this. Another fracture around the elbow is a radial head and neck. So radius is this bone up here that Dr. Schroeder talked to you about. They let the wrist on the other end. This is at the elbow end uh, of that radial bone. And then you have the fracture over here. Actually, it's a pretty common fracture. Most of them, good thing, they are not very displaced. It happened on all ages. The thing is that that part is very important. All the motion that we call prospination, this motion comes from that bone rotating around, each, around itself. 
And this is how it looks like normally, as you can see, a normal bone. And this is how it looks like when it's broken. It happens when you fall on your arm. There are different types of these fractures. And they can come in in different flavors. As you can see, they can come in like very displaced and dislocated ones too. The main thing is this bone, this part of this bone is very important in prospination. Turning your hand in and out. Turning the doorknob. Turning anything down. You need both of this motion because to grab something like this, to hand things over or to type in, you need to turn your hand in and out. This is a patient, 27-year-old female. Uh, after a motor vehicle accident, actually. Uh, splinted in local ED, presented at day five with a fracture. It's kind of a little hard to see, but there's a split here with little step-off. I saw her another week, and it was more displaced, and she wasn't able to rotate the arm. So we decided to do the surgery. We put a small mini plate and screws to fix it. As you can see, there's an intraoperative photo that is a plate and screw at that part of the body. This is after the surgery. This is nine months post-operative. She had some pain with the moving the arm, and I think this plate was irritating. We removed the plate at that time. As you can see, her range of motion is not close to her normal side, which is straight on this side. She lost some external uh, extension. At one year post-op, we removed the plate, some of the screws need to stay in the bone because they, the screw heads was broken. This is another patient, 34-year-old, fall off a bike. As you can see, there's a fracture here. And they already displaced the fragments. There's no way to fix this. And we replaced this. So radial head replacement actually is relatively new, and we don't know on the long-term 20, 30 years what's going to happen in a 34-year-old patient. But when you cannot fix it, we prefer to replace it with a metallic radial head and neck. We don't have great data what happens in 20, 30 years, but uh, this is the best we can do as of today. Another bone that can get broken is the olecranon part. So this part, the other bone around the elbow, it's shaded yellow, as you can see here. Olecranon fractures are important because actually the triceps, the muscle on the back of your arm, is attached to this, tricep, uh, to this bone. And when it's broken, it usually displaces because of the pull of your triceps. Or sometimes it happens when you fall onto your elbow or just onto your hand. There are different types from non-displaced, as you can see, to very displaced. Commonly, we treat these ones with surgery because it's very hard to move the elbow, as I mentioned. And then you don't treat them surgically. With the pull of the triceps, actually, it keeps migrating proximally. This is a patient which did not want surgery and came back after a year with like this. We usually use plate and screws, but there are other ways to fix it. You can use some kind of wires and screws, or you can use also some big screws and wires too. But all of this can have some complications. Sometimes the fracture doesn't heal and the fragment tries to escape, what we call it. As you can see, it was fixed down here, but it wasn't fixed well and it kind of escaped, so I needed further surgery. This is a patient, 57-year-old, one of the pictures I put over there. This is very kind of angulated, the displaced compared to the normal. This patient actually needs to have a radial head replacement because the elbow was dislocating that I found out during surgery needed a longer plate and a lot of mini plate and screws. 
This is one year follow-up. All the bones was healed and she got pretty good motion. Not perfect again, as I mentioned. You lose some of your extension, but she got very good flexion, as you see, which is more important functionally. In summary, the goal is always return to the prior functional level. Range of motion is critical. Life is motion, so you don't have motion. You're going to have a disability, and you will feel that you are not being able to do everything you want to do. The, don't forget about the 50-50 rule. No matter how much we do as surgeons, if you don't do your part as a patient to be able to hit the 100%, you need to do your part. Otherwise, there's no way you can hit the 100%. Very important for shoulder and elbow problems. Thank you. And I will take questions if you have. The question, so non, normally the bone has a kind of a wrapping around it which is called periosteum. How you, we are able to put this plate and screws onto the bone, what you do with this wrapping, the periosteum around the bone, because it's very critical to keep them as intact as possible. So the way it goes, sometimes it's damaged already with the fracture and the injury. We try to preserve as much as possible. As you mentioned, it provides the blood supply, uh, comes through this periosteal layer over the bone, and we, we put this plate and screws on top of it. Or sometimes you may need to kind of peel off this periosteum, but even we peel off, we peel off as a kind of an intact wrap, and when we close the wound, we put it back together. It's very important, but commonly the reason uh, is kind of disturbed is usually the injury itself due to the fracture and the displacement. The more displaced the fracture is, it usually cuts through or pierces through this periosteal layer. By the time we get to the surgery, it's already torn. But still, we, don't, we try not to damage any further. Yes, so uh, the question is that uh, the motion of the shoulder blade bone when we move our upper extremity. So actually, the shoulder blade bone work in kind of... Uh, in coordination with the arm bone, with the upper arm bone, everything we start doing it, actually the shoulder blade moves around the chest wall. There's some motion happening. If you stand up behind, if you look at somebody who ha who's moving the arms, you will see that the shoulder blade bones also moves together. They, they work together. And if you lose the motion of your shoulder blade bone, it's going to be a lot of problems too. Any problem around the shoulder, usually in the first couple weeks, you don't want to move your shoulder due to the pain, and the muscles around the shoulder blade bone weakens, atrophies. And any physical therapy around the shoulder needs to include to work on the muscles around the shoulder blade bone all the muscles around it. Because once you lose that coordination between the arm bone and the shoulder blade bone, which we call it actually dyskinesis, uh, scapular dyskinesis, you are not going to be able to have full function or you will have hard time to get the motion. And at the ends of the motion, you're going to feel that tightness. So you, they are coordinated. They need to work together. And all the muscles need to be kind of worked out with the physical therapy with any kind of shoulder problem. So for the elbow, it's less common. Actually, there's a condition for the shoulder that it's called frozen shoulder. 
it happens usually without any major trauma, without any fractures or tendon tears. It's called a frozen shoulder. Basically, without any trauma that the patient can remember, the shoulder starts getting slowly more painful and the, the patient is not being able to move the shoulder. It's kind of a progressive thing. It doesn't happen overnight, but over a month or two, they come in and they can barely do this. It's very painful. It's called frozen shoulder. It's more common in diabetic people. It's less common for the elbow. That kind of frozen elbow is pretty rare. It's commonly in the shoulder. If you are having a progressive loss of motion of your elbow, uh, without any major trauma, it's probably arthritis that's the first thing that I will think, which is not super common neither. Elbow arthritis is not as common as like hip and knee arthritis. Probably if you are over 65 year old, the chances that you're going to get hip or knee arthritis is probably 70%, like two out of three people. Elbow arthritis, without any major prior problem, like you may have an injury when you were a kid or something, is pretty rare. It's not very common, unless you have rheumatoid arthritis. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis may develop arthritis in every joint, including the elbow joint. Uh, frozen elbow is pretty rare. It's a good question. Actually, although we think that we are great surgeons, uh, the question is that when you have a shoulder replacement, is there any chance or there, what are the chances that it may dislocate? Although we claim that we are great surgeons and we do everything as good as possible, the joints that we replace us, uh, we are replacing are not as good as native joints. So we are not as good as God or whatever you believe in. So these replacements are artificial joints. There's always a risk that they may dislocate because what holds the joints, and every joint is a little different, and the shoulder joint actually is a little more critical because the stability of the shoulder joint is not primarily coming from the shape of the bone itself, which is the case in a hip joint, which is very kind of shallow uh, socket and a ball, which is, this is the only way to get that much of a motion. And all the stability of the shoulder joint, most part of it is not coming from the shape of the bones, it's coming from the muscles and the ligaments around it. And when you do this shoulder replacement, we try to preserve all of this, but we need to get to the shoulder somehow to put these artificial joints. And there's always a risk of dislocation. A native joint, without having a major motor vehicle accident or a motorcycle accident, you can't dislocate. You are not going to be able to dislocate a joint easily. But this shoulder, especially early on in the first year, there's a high risk that they may dislocate. That's why we protect these patients with a brace in the first uh, six weeks or so, but that risk of dislocation is usually high in the first year, gets much less significant after a year, but this can happen with artificial joints. Um, uh, the question is that orthotics and prosthetics, I believe, including, so it's very advanced compared to another 50 years prior we, we live in now. Uh, are there any things you can use for poor bone quality from orthotics standpoint? So I don't think you can use orthotics the same way. You can use probably certain types of braces instead of doing surgeries that try to get the patients as functional as they can, you can. Maybe 
better than doing nothing. You can use certain kind of braces. But regarding the fractures around the joints, this is not very feasible. If you have fractures away from the joints or between the joints areas, like they say in the middle of the arm, that's more feasible. So uh, when it gets closer to the joint, because it affects the joint function, range of motion, I don't think orthotics are very useful. But if you have a fracture in the middle of your arm, actually the primary treatment is not surgery. This bone heals very well if you have a broken arm in the middle. This heals like 85% of the time with just a simple orthotics where you put it around the arm. It heals 85% of the time. But not around the joints. Regarding the poor bone quality, there are certain devices that for more elderly people that live at homes when they fall to prevent these major fractures. Basically, it kind of pads around the hips and around the shoulders. But I think it's not very easy to use and put it on every day, but there are some research around that with people for poor bone quality to develop certain things that to prevent these fractures because it's a big deal in elderly people. The shoulder blade bone is not easy to break because it's very well protected with the muscles around it and the rib cage is next to it. So usually it happens with a very significant trauma, meaning that usually it's a motorcycle accident, kind of not in a car. In a car, you are relatively protected. There's nothing protected in a motorcycle. Or you fall from a very high uh, height, like a couple stories, or you are really hit with a high-speed motor vehicle and as a pedestrian. So when you have that, usually you have associated chest injuries, too. The way, most commonly, these fractures are not too bad, and it doesn't affect the socket of the shoulder blade bone. And we treat them without surgery, most of them, the vast majority, and they do very well. Usually, they don't cause major dysfunction or functional loss. It if involves the socket which is not very common, then in that case we will do an invasive surgery to fix the socket because you need to have a socket to have a functional shoulder. But it's not very common. I like to fix these socket fractures, but they are not very common. It's pretty rare. I probably fix somewhere less 5 to 10 a year, not much than that. I'm probably the one who fixes most around this area. And they are pretty rare. The indications are pretty narrow. Most of them are treated without surgery, basically physical therapy. Yes, this is one of the common questions I, I get when I show these pictures in our, our meetings, too. Uh, so I have patients who doesn't have these outcomes, too. So the stiffness comes from the scarring, okay? The scarring. So our body tries to heal anything with scar. Like when you have a cut in your skin, this happens inside, underneath the skin, too. Whenever our body is injured, it tries to heal with scarring. All these injuries, traumatic injuries, or the surgery that we do around these injuries, tries to heal with some scar tissue. The scar, there are two components of the scarring. So one is the patient's genes. There are some scar formers. A small percentage of patients are scar formers. So genetically, there's nothing you can change as of 2018, genetically, that if you are a scar former, you are at high risk to develop stiffness. The only way to know that if you had a prior surgery, musculoskeletal surgery, and you develop stiffness or extra bone formation around your joints, there's a predictor that you will develop some stiffness. But the other part, for most part of the patients, these are a very small percentage of patients, probably uh, less than a couple percent. 
For most patients, it's the type of the injury and the way you treat them. So the goal as an orthopedic surgeon, we always uh, try to encourage the range of motion. A lot of surgeries we do to be able to start the range of motion quicker. Because especially for fractures, if you hold the bones stable without moving them, Mother Nature heals them very reliably. If you don't move them, they will heal nine, more than 90% of the time. But by the time they are healed, it will be stiff. So the goal is to try to move it. And you don't have a great uh, time period. Usually most of the scarring forms around six weeks to three months. Beyond three months, it's very hard to overcome the stiffness. When I talk with my patients, without, before surgery especially, you've got you to gotta talk to them before surgery because after surgery, it's hard to convince them how much they need to do because they think that the surgery is over and this almost part of the treatment is done. I talk to them. Actually, some patients, I talk to them. If you don't think you can do like physical therapy very reliably or exercise every day, although you have some pain after the surgery, you may better off without surgery. Because I know the patients like for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, right, when they come into clinic, they know themselves better, right? Sometimes I tell them, like, you, that's what you need to do. If you do surgery, you're going to have more pain early on after the surgery, right? There's going to be surgical pain. We're going to be cutting your skin, going down. You're going to have pain, more pain than when you come in with a fracture with the, in the clinic. Then... For first week, first week or so, you're going to have a lot of pain. But I will ask you, if the surgery goes well and I fix it well, I'm going to ask you to start moving. You have to move it. Despite the pain, you have to move it. First six weeks, you have to move it despite the pain. This is the only way to avoid the stiffness. If you wait until the pain goes away, then you, you think in your mind that, okay, I will wait, the pain goes away, I can't move it, then I will start moving. It's going to be too late. And I see these patients more commonly than other surgeons that I know of because of this. Because once you do the surgery, it's not just the surgery itself and signing off with the physical therapist. I see them at two weeks. If they, I don't feel that they are moving much, I see them at four weeks. Around eight to ten weeks, I see them at 10 weeks for the patients that I start worried because at six weeks if they are getting good motion that I'm expecting, I think they are fine. But if they are behind, I scare them that they may not get good motion and they're not gonna be happy. The x-rays will look great, it will be healed, but they're not gonna do well, they're gonna hate it for the rest of their life. I, I use the same terms in front of them. Because their arm, right, eventually it's the patient's personal life. I think it works pretty well. And I tell them I will see them in another four weeks. With physical therapy, if they are making progress, I'm happy. If they are making progress with time, with physical therapy and your exercises, that means that you're going to get better and better with time, right? It's a predictor for me. But if you come back between, I see you six weeks and ten weeks. In four weeks, there's no significant progress. I usually get a report from PT too, and I usually confirm myself too, because there's a variation between how they assess. If there's no significant difference, and I ask the patient, how do you feel compared to a month ago? You think you can do more, your range of motion is better? And I objectively look at my note four weeks ago. If there's no significant difference, 
which means that you need to have at least like 10 degrees or more that I can notice it right visually. If you don't make any progress, I tell them that I'm going to take you to the operating room. I will manipulate, which means that there's no cutting, but we will put you to sleep. And I'm going to try to break your adhesions when you are asleep, that way you don't have pain. And we're going to do aggressively physical therapy right afterwards because during this manipulation, usually I'm able to get this range of motion close to normal. The goal is to maintain it. That I send them the next day to the physical therapy and tell them they need to continue to do the exercises. This is the only way. And I'm a more aggressive doing manipulations than compared to other surgeons, too. Because, I mean, it's easy, this is always my opinion, it's easy to tell them, like, go to the physical therapy, go to the physical therapy. The downside is that beyond three months, this manipulation doesn't work. You don't have the same gun to do the manipulation at six months, at a year. It doesn't work. The scar tissue forms very mature, and you usually don't get much with, like you can, you can put that patient to sleep, you push it, you don't get anything. You can't break that adhesions or the scar tissue. And if you push it too hard, you will break it. You will break the bone. So there's a kind of a fine timeline. That's why I tell the patients at six weeks, if their range of motion is not good, I tell them that they need to work hard to get the best motion they can with the physical therapists and themselves at home, like doing a homework every day. And if they don't get it, I will take you to the operating room at 12 weeks. I tell them at six weeks that that's what they're going to have, that's what I'm going to recommend. They may accept or not, but that's what I'm going to discuss with them at 10 weeks if their range of motion is not good. Because if you don't get it, then you don't have great surgical options to treat stiffness, to tell the truth. I mean, I can't, I can't claim that I can fix a lot of bones and bad fractures, and I'm pretty successful in that, but stiffness, I'd either fix 100 bones than try to treat that stiffness. We don't have, like, you can try to do exercises, scar tissues, but there's a high recurrence rate. They still form the scars. Every surgery may create another scar tissue. It's better to avoid further surgeries if somebody develops stiffness. It seems counterintuitive, but every surgery creates more scar tissue too. And the gene part, we can't change it, is what it is. I try to convince the patients that this is the best thing they can do for themselves. Uh, that's why I believe that my outcomes with the patients obviously requires a lot of time spent with the patients too, and follow-ups. But this is the only way to get better outcomes with this problematic joints and fractures around these joints. I think we need to wrap up. Our time is over. If you have any questions, you can come up and ask. Otherwise, I think we need to finish. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.